Well, good morning again, Lakeside. We live in an interesting time right now. The older I get and the more the world seems to spiral out of control, the more I really do want to be in heaven. But we're not there yet. And when we look around, the world is an interesting place. As I was preparing this week, I was looking just at some of the headlines and the war in Ukraine is gearing up. Russia is sending more and more waves of attack. The deadly and devastating earthquake in Turkey and Syria, I can't even imagine what the people are going through. Some of them, I pray, are believers. The devastation is incomprehensible. And then the Chinese seem to be on the march, sending spy balloons all over the place. North Korea just celebrated an anniversary and they were putting on display new nuclear missiles that the experts say, if they work, could reach anywhere in the world. And they have more of them than they've ever had. Saw a headline where Iran was showing off some new bunkers that couldn't be hit by Israel with the planes that they said would be used to destroy the country. Couldn't help but think of Jesus and believe it's Matthew 24. I don't have it in my notes. You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. And there'll be famines and earthquakes. Can't help but think we're living in those times. And yet as the world spirals out of control, I feel like so many people, including a lot of Christians, are off track. All of these various world events can occurring together make us unsettled add to that the economic uncertainty the issues of the world and, and there are some people that begin to see conspiracies everywhere that there's an elaborate plot to overthrow our country and the world is coming unglued and there's conspiracies everywhere someone sent me a link and I watched a pastor speak in a Sunday service, as far as I could tell, for 20 minutes on the Chinese spy balloons and referencing websites where you could go and find out what's really going on and what we're not doing. And I kept waiting him to connect it to anything biblical, and he never did. He just moved on. There are a lot of people spending a lot of time trying to connect all these dots. I don't really spend any time doing that. Again, it comes across my desk from time to time or in my email inbox, but I don't spend time doing that because the Bible has already told me and it's already told you all you need to know about this world. I'm a student of history. Before I was ever saved, I loved history. As a little kid, I would read books. And as a believer, I've seen throughout human history, everything the Bible said about humanity is true. And there's nothing new under the sun. So I don't spend time trying to look under rocks to see how it all fits. I know how it fits, but not because I'm so smart, but because the Bible tells me. Is there a worldwide conspiracy at work to destroy everything? Of course there is. But it's far more dangerous than the conspiracy theorists think. They're looking at countries, they're looking at leaders... They're looking at billionaires. They're looking at industrialists. They're looking at political parties. But all those things are just symptoms. Those are really just pawns. What's really going on is that our defeated adversary, Satan, is trying to run everything into the ground. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of, of disobedience. Satan's the original conspirator. He conspired in heaven, and a third of the angels followed him as he was cast out. He seduced Adam and Eve to sin and since that time he's been at work 
1 Peter 5.8 says, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's what we're seeing every day. We can get so mad at his agents, be they politicians or popular figures or actors, whatever they are, we can get so mad at them that we forget what motivates them. And we can lose sight of the real enemy. And we also lose sight of the fact that the only reason we see things as they are is because God's given us a new heart. He's given us eyes to see. Doesn't mean unbelievers are unaccountable, but we need to remember what the Bible says about all those people who don't know Jesus who are doing all these things. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Satan has demonically influenced this entire world the educational systems, the governmental systems, every political party in every country, every economic system that exists from capitalism to socialism to communism and every hybrid in between has been corrupted by sin. Yes, there's a conspiracy afoot, but you don't need to spend time trying to connect the dots behind the scene players. Satan is at work. And I don't believe that his attacks on America are so much against America as it is against every human soul that lives here. We still have a worldwide influence. We still have worldwide power. We still produce movies and all those things. We still control internet companies. So if he can drag us down, inevitably it takes the world with it. And if he can isolate and destroy Israel in the bargain since we're their chief defender... So much the better since he hates God's people. Yet in all of this, again, if we're not careful, we can get sidetracked. Are things bad? Yeah, they're really bad. And if we're realists, we understand from God's word, they're not going to get better. And in fact the attacks that seem to just be destroying the world really will come to bear on God and His children. We're seeing that. Second Peter 3.3 3 says this, Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mock- mocking following after their own lusts. We live in the midst of that. This describes everything about our society today. How have we been mocked? I don't have to convince you. Christians who truly believe in creation, as the Bible says it occurred, are mocked as ignorant and anti-science. If you believe that God ordained marriage as between one man and one woman, and that's the only respectable and honorable outlet for sexual relations, then you're probably going to be labeled a homophobe. If you believe that a boy is a boy and a girl is a girl and always will be, you're going to be labeled transphobic. If you believe wives are to submit to their husbands, then you're a misogynist and you hate women. If you believe that God created all men equally and we are all one race and don't live in the distinctions of skin color and ethnicity, you're probably going to be called a white supremacist trying to maintain your hold on power. Satan has stirred up popular culture in such a way that the forces of evil have turned truth and right and wrong on their heads. And Satan is leading sinful humanity where sinful humanity wants to go anyway. Years ago, the very first opportunity I ever had to teach the Bible was in a Sunday school class in Fresno and the teacher gave me the text I'm about to read to teach. At least I taught a few more verses than this. But 2 Timothy 3, 1-4. But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, 
treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That describes our world. So I don't spend a lot of time chasing down conspiracy theories, trying to figure out why the world is the way it is. I know why it is, because the Bible has told me. Satan has corrupted the world's systems. Man's heart are evil already. And it's a perfect blend of chaos and misery. You may not have thought of it as the particular verse. You may have, but I feel like we're living in the time described by God before He sent a worldwide flood. Genesis 6-5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. There's not a new secret conspiracy going on trying to undermine the world. It's the same satanic conspiracy that's been going on from day one. And it's willing, willingly received and perpetrated by unregenerate sinful hearts whose only interest is their own desires and lusts. Well, thank you, Joe, for the depressing start to this sermon. Don't be depressed. We can get aggravated and frustrated, but we don't have to be depressed because of everything we've been singing. We have Jesus. We have it all. And He's overcome all of this. John 16.33 says this, These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. 1 John 4, 4. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. We have peace with God. We have eternal life. Regardless of what's going on in the world, we have hope. We have an eternity in heaven reserved for us. But if we're not careful, when we're not here, bad news can weigh us down. We can start wringing our hands. We can start panicking. We can start getting discouraged and depressed. There's an epidemic of depression and mental illness in America. People are more discouraged than ever because they don't have hope. And if you don't have Jesus, depression's not irrational. But we do have Jesus. So we should be different. So we're going to spend our time this morning looking at a text that tells us how do we live in a world like this. Again, there's nothing new under the sun. The Bible addresses our situation perfectly. And we need these lessons more than ever because as Christians, we are standing alone. The world may have in past generations paid lip service to what we believe, but that's no longer the case. What we believe and what we hold dear is rejected by and large, by every institution we know. The hostility that the world showed to Jesus may one day be coming to our doorstep. So I want us to be prepared to live in this world. And as part of my own personal study quite a while ago, I turned to 1 Peter because it addresses so many things. And I'm going to ask you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 3 this morning. We're going to be looking at a little section that was a subpart of what I read as our scripture reading, we're going to be looking at a section of verses 13 to 17 that deals directly with what we are facing. How do you make sense of and deal with a hostile world that hates Jesus and everyone associated with Jesus? How do we live in that circumstance? Particularly if things turn difficult. The reason I was ever drawn to 1 Peter was because of things going on in America that were very concerning. And the book is written to tell people how to live in a fallen world. Of course, that's the entirety of the Bible. But Peter was dealing with some very specific things that are helpful to us. I thought they had applicability, and certainly our text this morning has applicability to us. But the overall goal of his book was very simple. To live as a believer, like Jesus lived. 1 Peter 1, verses 14 to 16, 
Read this way. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. I'm convinced that everything in the book is directed towards that ultimate goal. Be like Jesus. And yet what he says repeatedly, including in our text this morning, is that unbelievers are watching what we do. In 1 Peter chapter 2, he says this beginning at verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. In other words, our lives are on display. Now he goes on in the book to tell us what does that look like in the context of dealing with a government that is unfair and dealing with employers in that case master-slave relationships that were unfair and how do you deal with marital situations that may not be good and in all of it he's, his call to us is keep your behavior excellent which is another way of saying be holy as God is holy but as we get to our text this morning as you study the entirety of the book he begins to focus on what it looks like to be holy in a particular context what happens when hostility and persecution comes at believers? When the values of Scripture cause people to turn against us? Dealing with hostility and persecution. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. So Peter wanted to prepare his hearers for that eventuality. So I've already read the text in our scripture reading. I'm not going to reread it to start. But really, this is just a simple outline. Preparing for a life of hostility. Preparing for a life of hostility. The world does not like Jesus. It didn't like Jesus 2,000 years ago. It likes him even less now. And we are his representatives. So we've got to be ready. And we've got to take seriously our responsibility. So, preparing for a life of hostility. The first point is this. Take seriously the call to obedience. Take seriously the call to obedience. Peter begins with an interesting statement in verse 13. It's a rhetorical question. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? And he's talking about a particular behavior characteristic. The word translated zealous in the New American that I read, it literally is zealot. A zealot for the good. Someone who is hardcore. We might call them fanatics. But this isn't just hardcore fanaticism in a vacuum. This is for doing what God says to do. One commentator said, this is a burning desire to do right. Good is what we think it is. He's already explained in this book. It's being holy as God is holy. It's keeping your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. It's avoiding evil speech and doing the right thing. Obeying the great commandments to love God and love our neighbor. It's taking seriously a commitment to live well towards everyone around us. As described in Galatians 6.10. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. So we have special responsibilities to each other, but even amongst unbelievers, we're supposed to do good to them. The challenge for us is that it also applies to our enemies and it seems like these days everybody's our enemy. They all hate us. Luke 6, 27 and 28. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. It's a pattern of consistent godly behavior regardless of what people do to you. So he's talking about zealous behavior. He's talking about obedience, but it's interesting because he says something that even when I was studying it, it tripped me up at first. It's a rhetorical question. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? And the answer is supposed to be no one. Yet we understand Jesus did nothing but good and was crucified. He said if they did it to me, they'll do it to you. 
but there's not really a contradiction here. Peter is speaking in general terms. He's speaking in general truths, kind of like a proverb might do. He's saying this is generally true, but he's going to recognize, as we'll see going through the text, that there are exceptions to this. But the general truth is this. Even in a fallen world, living amongst unbelievers, if your life is obedient to the Word of God, if you're walking by the Spirit such that even when unbelievers see you, they see the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He's saying even in a fallen world, most of the time if people are seeing that, they're going to leave you alone. I wouldn't phrase it this way necessarily, but if you logically follow that through, if you want to avoid hostility, be very obedient to the Word of God. Doesn't mean it won't come. He's going to deal with that in a minute and we'll deal with that. But he's saying in general, if your behavior is excellent, you'll be able to live more at peace. Obeying the two greatest commandments is of course the foundation. You love God and you love your neighbor. You're doing good to those around you. And he's saying if you're consumed by these things, if that's your passion, if you're known as someone who's a zealot, for being kind and gracious and good and caring and loving. Even the sinners of the world most of the time will leave you alone. It's interesting because Paul lived in a time of a corrupt government. The Roman government was very orderly but very corrupt. And yet he pointed out the same thing as far as submitting to the government. In general, according to Paul, if you do the right thing, the government's going to leave you alone. Romans 13, 3 and 4. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good. And you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So again, these are general principles. But they're saying basically the same thing. We should be the most obedient citizens in America, but not American laws, although we obey them, obedient to the Word of God. Again, that doesn't guarantee that we're immune. Jesus proves that. He was tortured and killed by a corrupt Roman governor who was motivated by corrupt religious leaders. So there will be injustice. And again, we're going to deal with that. But he's saying, if you live the right way, those things will not happen nearly as often. So let me ask you a challenging question as we are in the midst of this. Think about all the unbelievers that you know in your family or that you work with. And would they say, he's a fanatic for Jesus? I don't mean running around with yelling and screaming at people, but I mean in the humble and quiet spirit, living in such a way that all they see are the fruits of the Spirit in your life. Would people describe you as a zealot for the Word of God? Not just that you love it, but that you live it. Christians are thought of as zealots right now in America, but not because we live so well. They think of us as zealots for a particular political party or for particular political causes. There's a lot of types of zealots. This evening, people will be zealots for sports teams in the Super Bowl. We can be zealots for our way of life. We can be zealots for our career. We can be zealots for our perceived right to an education. We can be zealots for our kids and our wives. But if we're not zealous for Jesus, if we're not zealous to obey the Word of God, we're missing it all. And when people look at us, they'll see what they see in every other American. We should be different. We should be walking by the Spirit. The best preparation for a hostile world, and it will get more hostile, is to be more godly. Take seriously the call to obedience. But even if you do, trouble may come. And Peter deals with that. And what is our second point? 
preparing for a life of hostility. Take seriously the call to obedience. Number two, if hostility comes, embrace Jesus, not fear. If hostility comes, embrace Jesus, not fear. Peter goes on in verses 14 and the beginning of verse 15, paint a contrast of how we can face this fallen world. Verse 14, But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. He's really telling us how to confront those unusual situations where even though we're doing the right thing, we're suffering. In fact, it's very important because he's saying this exceptional situation, but even if you should suffer, but it's not general human suffering that we all endure. It's suffering for the sake of righteousness. In other words, it's suffering because you're following Jesus. That's a huge distinction. But it's what would happen if our lives are zealous for obedience. It will make us stand out. Peter reminds us, first of all, that even if that happens, we shouldn't despair. He says, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. We're not happy because we're suffering, but we're happy because we're being counted worthy and we're thankful that we have the promises of God that we're okay even in the midst of it. Peter, I think, is just in a short way, saying what he learned at the foot of Jesus. Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 and 12. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets were, who were before you. Again, Peter is saying, even if it comes your way, don't, don't panic. I think in America, if Christians, this comes at us, our first instinct is we've got to fight back. We've got to plant a flag. We forget that this is a blessing from the Lord if we suffer for the sake of righteousness. And then Peter paints the contrast. Are you going to be afraid or are you going to be embracing Jesus? First, the fear. He says, and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. This is really a loose quotation from a text found in Isaiah chapter 8. But he's basically meaning this. People that don't want you to follow Jesus, meaning people that want you to be like them. The Bible says unbelievers marvel why we won't just do what they're doing. We're a condemnation of their lifestyle when we only follow Jesus And he's saying, they'll probably try and intimidate you. They'll probably try and make you fearful. And he's saying, don't be afraid of them. That's not necessary. Don't be troubled, meaning you're agitated. You're you're discombobulated on the inside. You're emotionally tossed all over the place. He's saying that we don't need that as believers. It's one of the things that concerns me as I look at the modern, at least American Christianity, is far too often we seem, or it seems the portrayal that you watch is Christians are panicking. We're so up in arms and we're so angry at times and it's not all righteous anger that we forget we're not supposed to be that way. We're not supposed to be troubled. We're not supposed to be upset on the inside. John 14, 27, Jesus said this, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Here's the point. If hardship comes our way because we're following Jesus, that's okay. It's a blessing from God. And we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be upset. We should embrace it, knowing God's using it for our good, as we'll cover even more later. And how do we do this? By, in the midst of all of this, turning to Jesus. He says, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. This is an internal work that we do by reminding ourselves of who Jesus is and what He's done for us.
We're not supposed to be fearful. We're not supposed to be rattled. We're not supposed to be intimidated by what's going on in the world. We're supposed to calmly, peacefully remember what Jesus has done. Sanctify Christ. Sanctify just normally means set apart, but most agree that it probably has a little bit of a fuller sense here. The ESV translated as honor. The idea of reverence. One commentator I love said this, enshrined as the object of supreme absolute reverence, as free from all defilement and possessed of all excellence. I believe the Lord's Prayer captures this. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's remembering who our Savior is. He is Lord. He's the sovereign one. We already have victory over all of the chaos around us because of what Jesus has done. That's why he says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. We can't be so easily rattled and unsettled. We have to ingrain in our hearts the truths of God's Word about the hope we have and then it should be manifest to others through our lives. But it's a daily battle to focus on Jesus. He said in Luke 9.23 and he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Every day we have to purpose in our hearts it's about Jesus. Jesus is Lord of my life. And why is that a battle? Because we are the Lord of our lives far too often. Jesus is supposed to be enthroned as Lord in our hearts and if we're not careful we look in the mirror and we've sat down in His place. We have to stop thinking of what do I want? What do I want to do? And rather think, what does God want me to do? To elevate Jesus as Lord in our hearts, we have to deny ourselves and not be consumed with ourselves. I'm convinced that the reason the world events bother us so much is because we have a wrong view of things, me included. We think of our lives as our own. It's, it's my body, it's my time, it's my house, it's my car, it's my family, it's my church. My, 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 me, me, me. And the reason that what's going on in the world bothers so much is because it disrupts what we want. I can't be content if I perceive all these threats coming after me and my stuff and my wants. We have to step back and take the focus off of ourselves and put the focus back on Jesus in our hearts. Jesus is sovereign. He is Lord, not just of this world, and He is, but also of our individual lives and hearts. And that has to be our daily pledge and focus to develop the habit that doesn't start the day thinking it's about me, but rather it's about Jesus. Even if hostility comes, we have to remember that the hostility isn't directed against us. Our pride will get upset. We're slandered. We're falsely accused. Really, the target isn't even us. It's Jesus living in us. So we have to work hard every day to have Jesus at the forefront of our lives. We have to think on Him. We have to dwell on His Word. Fixing our eyes on Him every time a politician makes us mad or every time a new law is passed by Congress that makes us upset or every time a different world power does something that we think is problematic. Every time we see Christians slandered and ridiculed for what we believe, embrace Jesus and accept His will and not live in fear and anxiety. I believe Peter's teaching what Paul taught in 2 Peter 1, 7 and 8. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner, but join me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. And all of this is about the gospel, as we'll see in our third point. Preparing for a life of hostility. One, take seriously the call to obedience. Two, if hostility comes, embrace Jesus, not fear. Three, be ready to defend your faith in word and deed. 
Be ready to defend your faith in word and deed. The second part of verse 15 and verse 16 have very powerful truths for us. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. In a lost and dying world, I can't think of many more significant issues than this. There is a lot of truth that we need to meditate upon and make sure that we're living out. But let me say the big picture because this is what's most important. And then we'll deal with some details. When dealing with this hostile world, and it will get more hostile, every single Christian must be able to explain the gospel. Every single person must be able to explain how it is that they've come to faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Every believer needs to be able to explain why that's true. I'm not talking in some theological sense where you're breaking apart the Greek words. That's not necessary. But in the practical sense of how is it that you have hope as a child of God? Always being ready. That really is at any moment. The idea is that in a hostile world, you never know when somebody is going to ask you about Jesus. Always means always. At any time, we have to be prepared. It's been a lot of years ago, but I remember in school, I hated when a teacher would do a pop quiz. Why? Because I wasn't ready. I didn't have any chance to get prepared. I can tell you, Jesus is saying, be prepared. Because at any moment, this could happen. Always being ready. Ready for what? To make a defense. It's a fancy theological term. Many of you have heard it. If you're a new believer, probably not. It's called apologetics. You take a course in seminary to learn how to share your faith. Defend the faith really is more than share the faith. The idea to make a defense is that you can explain in a rational way why you believe what you believe. Again, you don't have to be a theologian to break down everything. But if somebody says, you are different, you have hope, you ought to be able to explain to them why you have hope in Jesus. It's a reason defense. If someone asks you the question, you can say, this is why. Let me show you from God's Word. Let me tell you from my own experience. And you can tell very quickly that Peter is assuming that the people to whom he's writing are going to take seriously his call to live zealously for good and that they're going to keep their behavior excellent among the Gentiles and that they're going to desire to be holy as God is holy because he says this, make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. In other words, a lost and dying world will look at you and they'll say something's different. They see a hope they're blinded to the reality of spiritual things, but they can see the world is going down. And it's scary for them. In their hearts, they don't know how to make sense of everything. It looks chaotic. It looks out of the ordinary. And Peter is implying that when they look at us, they should see something different. A hope. A calm assurance even in the midst of the storms. Especially in hard times, they're supposed to be able to look at our lives and say, well, that's different. I'm hopeless. You have hope. Tell me about it. Why is that? Perhaps in some cases, it would be in some type of false accusation, an angry question, in which case you give a reasoned defense of your faith. Or it could be that it's an honest inquiry of somebody saying, I need what you have. But we have to be able to articulate why we believe. Again, if our lives don't look any different than any other American, then they're not going to see the hope in the first place. So we've got to get our lives right. But if our lives are right, then we've got to make sure that we have the ability to tell people about Jesus. People will want an explanation. We should have one. 
Many times the years I was in seminary and our family was worshiping at Grace Community Church, I heard John MacArthur say something along these lines. If you know enough to be saved, you know enough to share the gospel. Just tell people what you believe. In the midst of a chaotic world, at some point, Peter says, unbelievers are going to look at you and say, explain yourself. It's interesting because in our current culture, in our current hostility towards everything we believe, it's easy to get angry and defiant. I'll clarify that this is not talking about anybody I've met at Lakeside, but in my past years at other churches, I remember being around believers who almost seemed happy that unbelievers were going to hell because they were so mad at what they were doing. They were so mad at their sin that it would be along the lines of, well, but you're going to hell, so you'll get your due. Peter says something different. He says, we make a defense with gentleness and reverence. In other words, with compassion for the lost soul, even if they're infuriating, even if they're mistreating us, recognizing that they're just blind and lost and in danger of hell. They're in the grip of Satan. Rather than being disgusted by them, in that moment when they ask for an account for the hope, we make a defense in compassion, gentleness, and reverence, recognizing that in the core of who they are, the only difference between you and them is that God showed you mercy. That's not a source of pride. This lost person is questioning you and whatever they've done, they need to know the truth and you're the one God's appointed to share it with them. Sharing your faith is not something that's the job of your pastors. It's not just the job of an evangelist. They all have their role. But each one of you, if you claim to know Jesus Christ, you should be able to articulate, this is why I'm saved. And this is how you can be saved. Again, we had to do a lot of different things in seminary that were intended to give us practical experience. And so I remember sitting in a baptism or a membership class at another church. And they were asking the person their testimony. And there were two men that had come in together. And it actually was a very sad thing because they said, well, why do you want to be baptized? And it's like, because I've finally overcome alcohol. Okay, that's a good thing. And, but why do you want to be baptized? Well, because I don't have that addiction to alcohol anymore. And the two men were just basically saying the same thing they had met in AA. Everything about what they were doing was because they were so happy to be done with alcohol. That's not the gospel. Good for them. I'm I'm thankful for them. But the gospel isn't about what you've overcome. It's what Christ overcame in your sinful heart. Let me encourage you. If you don't feel like you know enough to share the gospel, you need to talk to a pastor. You need to talk to your friend. You need to ask someone to help you. And be careful with my words. I'm not saying that you're comfortable doing it. Not everybody's a public speaker. That's not what I'm talking about. Some of us, we know what to say and it's just hard to share it. I get that. And God will help you overcome that. I'm talking about if somebody asks you to give an account for the hope that's in you and you go, I don't know. That's not okay. Do something about it today. And yet it's not just our words that defend our faith. It's also our actions. You might have to think through this, but... Peter goes on in verse 16 and says, and keep a good conscience. In other words, this has to do with our inner recognition of sin. A good conscience exists when we know that we've confessed the sins that we know of and we're striving to be obedient. Joel and I didn't plan this, but what he did at the beginning of the service to stop and give us a moment to pray is to try and help us get a good conscience, to remind us that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Bible references this concept over and over. For example, in Acts 24, 16, in view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience both before God and before men. 
So Peter's not going into some new territory, but here's the challenge for us. We all know we sin. How you keep a good conscience is to confess your sin and try, with the Lord's help, to turn away from it. Now we have to be careful because if you're willfully disobedient, you can sear your conscience. And I've known a lot of people that think they're fine with the Lord and they're actually in trouble. But as a believer who's trying to live rightly, who wants to follow the Lord, who's pleading for God's guidance and help, a good conscience is possible by being obedient and when we're disobedient, quickly confessing and turning away from our sin. And Peter says that if we have a good conscience, which is another way of saying what he's already been saying, that we're being holy as God is holy, that we're keeping our behavior excellent, that we're doing good, if that's the case, it's going to have an impact on those who are attacking us. He goes on, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. In other words, even in a fallen world, Unbelievers, despite their hatred, will know the difference. And in certain circumstances, you could be viciously accused of all kinds of things, but your behavior will vindicate you that you're innocent. In fact, those making the charges in time will be put to shame. But that only occurs if you're actually doing the right thing. So we're giving a defense with our words, but we're also giving a defense by how we live. Be ready to defend your faith in word and deed. Brings us to our final point. Time is short. Preparing for a life of hostility. Take seriously the call to obedience. If hostility comes, embrace Jesus, not fear. Be ready to defend your faith in word and deed. Number four, trust God's plans even if they are unpleasant. Trust God's plans even if they are unpleasant. Verse 17, For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. He's really just summarizing this and saying, if God wills it and you suffer for doing the right thing, it's okay. It's a better thing. He's already said we'll be blessed if that occurs. But here he's just reminding us that God is sovereign over all of these things. If you suffer for doing right, it's part of God's will. And you don't have to fight against it. You can accept that God's working out His perfect purposes in your life. It's interesting because he paints a contrast. It seems as though he recognizes that at times believers will suffer, but it's not because they were doing the right thing. At times they may suffer for doing the wrong thing. That's why he says that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. In other words, if you suffer hardship because you sinned or did the wrong thing, that doesn't bring a blessing from God. That's not better. That's just reaping what you sow like anybody else. I don't have time to read it, but you could go back and look in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 to 20. He's telling slaves how to live with their masters, even if their masters are terrible. And he's saying, look, you don't get any credit if you've done wrong and you take your punishment. That's not martyrdom. In my own life, back in my days as an attorney, I used to do a lot of investigations I remember from time to time seeing, not necessarily directly, but seeing a circumstance where somebody said, I'm being discriminated against because I'm a Christian. Well, that would qualify as suffering for righteousness sake. But when you look into it, the reality was they were suffering because they were a bad employee. That's not, that's not honorable. That's shameful. So we never want to suffer for doing the wrong thing. We're just getting what we deserve. But, know this, if in the Lord's sovereign purposes you're doing the right thing, you're being a zealot for the good and you suffer for it, it's a better thing and you have God's blessing. And at that moment, the promises of Romans 8.28 should be your comfort. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. This world is a bad world. When I was saved in 1993, I looked around the world and I looked at our political system and I thought things were terrible. 
And now 30 years later, I think things are worse. And if God gives me 30 more years as an old man, I'll probably look back and say, remember how good things were back in 2023? But God's not calling us to do anything new. Yeah, the world's a mess. Yes, Satan is a deceiver and a liar and he's orchestrating worldwide chaos. But Jesus wins and we belong to Jesus. So every day we're following in the footsteps of saints that have gone before us who have also endured hardship. Brings me back to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And if we're living that way, the promises of Romans 8.31 will give us all the comfort we need. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we live in unsettling times. Lord, we love our way of life. We love many aspects of our country. We love many things about this earth. And yet, perhaps our love for this earth is why you remind us that our true citizenship is in heaven. Lord, the world is spiraling out of control. It is a mess. And yet, in the midst of that, the darkness needs the light of the gospel and we're your ambassadors to bring it. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters who have been convicted or challenged by any aspect of this message. Lord, help us be holy. We struggle mightily every day against sin. Lord, help us live victoriously. And Lord, when we fail, help us quickly confess it to you. Lord, I also pray for those who are hearing my voice that don't have hope. Lord, they see the world, they see the destruction, but they don't know of their own problem, that they're sinners before a holy God. Lord, I pray that you'll open their eyes today, that they'll see that they have not just violated your law, but that they stand condemned. The wages of sin is death. Yet, Lord, I hope you would also open their eyes to realize that Jesus died in the place of sinners. The punishment that we deserve was placed on Jesus for all those who would ever believe. Lord, work a miracle in hearts today so that some could embrace Jesus. And for the rest of us, Lord, pray that you will help us not to be despairing or discouraged, not to fall into depression by the horrible state of the world. Lord, you're on your throne, you're sovereign, you knew we would live in these times. Pray rather, Lord, that we would have the hope of the gospel of Jesus, knowing that he is the conqueror of all, including our own hearts. Lord, we love you. I pray that we will go from this place as salt and light in a world that desperately needs it. We ask this in your name. Amen.